Then he went back to the Israelite camp and he said, Get up, for Yahweh is handing the Midianite army over to you. Now, finally he goes back. Since the altar being burned up, this is the first time he's used Yahweh. He used Yahweh at the altar and he hasn't used Yahweh since then. And now he is. But he's also saying God will hand him over to you. Well, technically, Gideon, it was supposed to be God is handing it over to you, Gideon. But we won't split hairs too much on that one. He gave them all trumpets and empty jars with torches inside them. And he said to them, watch me, as do as I do. Watch closely. I'm going to the edge of the camp and do as I do. And when I and all who are with me blow our trumpet, you also blow your trumpet around the camp. And then say, for Yahweh and for Gideon. Notice when Ehud led his people, he says, for Yahweh is giving you victory and for his glory, period. He stopped there. God says, so that you may know that I am God, period. When we see Samuel, Samuel will say, so you will know that God. Moses says, behold your Lord who will prove himself to you with the party in the Red Sea. So you go, look, your Lord is giving you water. Look, your Lord is giving you bread. Your, look, your Lord is giving you meat. Period, 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 period. Gideon says, do this for the glory of Yahweh and me. That's not good. That's not good. Now, not only that, he's giving them all jars with fire in it so that when they break it, the fire will appear. And he's giving them all trumpets. Why? What is the purpose of fire at night? It's the same purpose of a flag in a battle. When you are, okay, unlike the movies, you don't stay in nice uniform way all the time. When you go into battle and you have one army and another army and they just run each other and clobber each other, you get mixed up really quickly. And unlike football teams, you don't have the red shirts and the blue shirts. Everybody's wearing browns and grays. And then when it gets muddy from everybody trampling around, the muddy splintering up to you. And when heads are being cut off and arms are being cut off, you're being sprayed with blood. And in the midst of all these swinging swords and dropping bodies, if you read accounts of wars from that time period, of people who were actually there, they talk about that most of the time, in the very beginning of the battle, when you slam into each other, your arms are pinned to your body. It's so tight and so crowded, you can't even swing anything. And the first people who die are just the ones who get trampled underfoot. And when enough people get trampled underfoot, then you have, a, you have more room to swing. And then when you begin to swing, body parts are hacking off and you're getting sprayed with blood and mud. And then when that happens, you're slip, we, there's descriptions of people slipping in intestines and dying and slipping on brain matter and all this kind of stuff. And, it's, and they can't see because blood is spraying them in the face. War is hell. And when that happens, you begin to lose your bearings really quickly. And you begin to feel like you're all alone in hell and chaos. And you're watching people die and they're going down around you and, you. and all that chaos, you can't distinguish who is with you and who's not. And you're being filled with fear. And it's really easy to run away. And it happens. And what if in all the chaos, you really truly outnumber the enemy, but because you can't determine that in the chaos, you run away and you get home and you realize, wow, we still outnumbered them. We could have defeated them. And so the flag bearer is the one who stands out there for a rallying point. And so when all the formation breaks down and the chaos erupts and you lose your bearings, everybody knows that when the trumpet blows, you run back to the flag, you regroup yourself, and you go back into the melee. 
You ever seen the movie The Patriot with uh, Mel Gibson? And they're all running away retreating. He grabs the flag and he starts raising it. And they all rally towards it. They regroup and they rush back in and they, they have a victory. But they would have never had that victory without the flag bearer. And that's what the fire is for night. It's a rallying point to get reorganized things. But the reality is not everybody has a torch. You only have a few torches or a few flags here and there because most of your people, you want them to be fighting. Now, why trumpet? The trumpet is the signals. Like, if, if, if I've got, like, 3,000 people in my army, it doesn't matter how, how loud I yell, they're not all going to hear me. And especially when everybody else is yelling and swords are crashing and people are screaming, they're not going to hear. So you use trumpets and you, you trumpet out signals, retreat, charge, flank, whatever. Trumpeter trumpets it out to a certain area. And then when the other trumpeter, like 50 or 100 people away or so many yards away, hears that, he trumpets it off and he passes it down. And unlike the game of telephone, everybody is accurate because if you're not accurate, your general cuts your head off. So there's a motivation to play the tele telephone game right. So you usually have like a trumpeter for every like 100 men or a torchbearer for every 100 men, something like that. But if Gideon is giving every single guy a trumpet and every single guy a torchbearer, then if they look out and see 100, 300 flames and hear 300 trumpets, what is the enemy thinking in the middle of the night? There are 3,000 or 30,000. Gideon is giving the illusion that there's more of him. Which is brilliant, but at the same time, he's, what he's done is he's trying to undo God's whittling down the army. He's trying to make the enemy think that there's far more of them than there really is. So basically everything that you did, God, to whittle down the army, I'm going to make the enemy think that that didn't happen. So that when we defeat the enemy, the enemy will say, we were defeated by 30,000 people. And God doesn't get the glory. What Gideon is doing is making the enemy think that his numbers never got... Because remember, he started off with 32,000 people. With 300 trumpeters and 300 flames, he just made his army look like 32,000 people again. Which means God's not going to get the glory. This is, And then on top of that, he's saying, for God and me. This is not faith. This is not faith. Now, in some sense, there is a little bit faith again because he finally steps out and does it. Like, after all of this coddling, he finally does it. You've got, it. You've got to look at it from the standpoint of it's at night. You have 300 people. Maybe God gave them the wisdom to do something to make it seem like he's got a larger... Yes, and I would totally agree with that, except when you keep reading, you find out that God routed the army. And Gideon doesn't actually fight anybody. And the only thing Gideon is going to do is chase down the stragglers. Yes, if that was the end of the story, one could say, well, that's kind of like Ehud, right? He's using his clever and wit and that kind of stuff. But in the context that God intentionally whittled down his army, and Gideon is making his army look big again, which is contrary to what God did, and the fact that when Gideon finally goes out and breaks his jars and blows his trumpets, God routes the army, and the army's gone. And Gideon actually never did anything. All of that was pointless. And the other thing you have to remember is, yes, for America, that would be brilliance. Because America doesn't have a promise from God that I am with you. And I don't mean like Americans don't, but our American army does not have a promise from God that I am with you. But they do. 
And most of the battles that you see throughout the Bible, God is doing it all. The Kishon River flooding, wiping them out. The Red Sea. The, 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 with Jonathan, the army being just attacking themselves. And, and when we get to David's battle against his own son, it says that the, the trees killed more people than the sword that day. So like the Ents from Lord of the Rings. So the reality is when you keep seeing this pattern over and over and over again, that God doesn't actually expect you to really fight. And when you do fight, it's always the leftovers. Like Joshua got to fight the leftovers in Jericho after the walls came down. God got to fight the, Jer- the leftovers of Ai after they ran away. David fights the leftovers after they run away. Jonathan fights the le- It's always the leftovers. But the main army is always dismembered by God. And so Gideon is not really showing faith. And even if we do see this as, yeah, but maybe that was just clever wit, the reality is he still took him forever to get to this point, And he still said, for my glory, my glory. So this shows you that he is not really trying to give all glory to God. Now, does he show some faith? Yes, because he finally stepped out. But if this is how your pastors led your churches or ministries were led constantly, with constant testing and constant, I'm afraid, let's go talk to the, the people in the other countries and the Muslims and find out how they feel about us first before we go witness to them. Or, and let's do this for me and my ministry. Like, in the name of our church, let's go out and do this. Which I've heard churches actually say that. You would say, that's, that's not right. That's not right. And you need to see it that way. It's easy to read the story and to see a really cool adventure. But it's not a really cool adventure. It's a man doubting God constantly. And so when the 300 men blew their trumpet, verse 22, Yahweh caused the Midianites to attack one another with their swords out of the camp. Gideon didn't even get to them. They blew their trumpets, and the Midianites immediately turned on each other and began to kill each other. It doesn't, Gideon doesn't kill anybody. Gideon's not even in the camp. He doesn't even make it there. This is what God is doing. I want to hear the conversation with Gideon after all this. See, Gideon, if you would have just gone out from the very beginning and shown up, you would have just seen me clobber the enemy. I never expected you actually do it. When I said defeat the Midian army as one man, I meant go out in faith and believe that I can use you to do it. And then you would see me do a miracle that you've never seen before. I mean, how many times do you see armies turning on each other and just start killing each other? A lot of times, sometimes, God expects you to roll up your sleeves and get out there and do it. But a lot of times, God is just saying, go out and behold my wonders. What should I do? Even when there's times that, like, I have witnessed to somebody verbally, and I am physically doing the talking and I am physically having the conversation with them. Afterwards, I'm like, what in, where in the world did that all come from? I've never made those connections before. I've never spoke that eloquently. I'm like on the fly. I've never like been able to counter things like bam, bam, bam like that. Like I never even thought about my that experience in my childhood as a good example of God's faith. Like, And then sometimes I just think like, that was not me talking. But at the same time, it was because it wasn't like I became a robot that got all of a sudden possessed and like all these weird things I've never known before. But at the same time, it was like, wow, that was truly a partnership. And that's what God wants to do. God is not a God sitting up on the throne, leaning back in his chair, and he's like eating his grapes and says, go out, go do it. 
I'm with you. And then you come back and you succeed. He's like, see, I told you. Or you fail and he's like, oh my gosh, how did you just screw that all up? When God calls you to go out and do something, he really means I am with you. And he may physically use you and he will use you in a unique way that it is you. But at the same time, it's so obvious that it was God. Because you've never been able to pull anything off like that before. You need to understand that. God is not a general sending you out into the fields. God is, and especially for us today, the Holy Spirit is not coming upon you for specific tasks. The Holy Spirit is indwelling you 24-7, sealed in the Spirit, that neither life nor death nor heaven or hell or anything above or below or angels can separate you from that. And if this is what God is able to do when he says, go out and I am with you, and God makes that happen, imagine what he can do with Christ and the Holy Spirit actually living in you. And this is what I mean by the Holy Spirit's purpose is to empower you supernaturally to do his will. And his will for you today is to expand the garden through witnessing and to sanctify and disciple people, including yourself. And the question is, do you test God? Yeah, God, but my goodness, can you really change this in me? Can you really help me overcome my addiction? Can you really truly make me a better father? I mean, I'm constantly doing this stuff all the time. Am I really going to be able to witness to them? I am scared out of my mind, and that's they're kind of weird, and I'm not used to that. Are we really going to be able to go out there and really like help these people in the way that they need to be helped? We're Gideons. And we're testing God, and we're doubting him, and we need to listen to the other people and hear them talk, and then we get a little bit more confidence, or they're totally confident, we get afraid and back off. Or they have a better argument than anything we can come up with and you think, oh, there's no way the Holy Spirit can give me a good argument for that. <laughs> because it's all on me. And then when we finally do step out in faith and sometimes, and people are like, oh, wow, you did a really great job. And you're like, I know. <laughs> and, they, and you know it's God. And you're so thankful to God, but there is a part of you who's like, yeah. Right? We're Gideons. See, the Bible is meant to be a mirror. The Bible is not just a story about some guy a long time ago and you're like, oh yeah, you stupid idiot. Don't you know all this? The Bible is meant for you to look at it and say, oh my goodness, that is me. And the more you can see that, and then, this, and then the other thing is the more you can see how God deals with him in the process. That God hasn't abandoned him. God hasn't said, oh my goodness, I can't deal with this anymore the more you begin to realize that you will become less and less like Gideon and more and more a man or woman of faith. But you have to look in the Bible and read the text. You cannot let the tradition of our churches interpret it for you. You cannot let a really quack, quick reading of Veggie Tales cartoon interpret it for you. I am, you have to be a text person. And you have to read carefully and diligently and see exactly what the narrator wants you to see. And when you see that, then the Word of God becomes a truly effective mirror for your life. And the, the sovereignty and the compassion, the faithfulness and the love of God really shines even brighter. 
And when those two things happen, then you begin to change. Does this make sense? This is what you do when you go home. You take this and you meditate on it. And you ask God, where am I at Gideon in my life? And where have you constantly burnt up meat for me and changed the dew for me and sent me to the camp and given me encouragement? Where are you saying that I'm doing this so that you will know that I am God and far greater than anything else? Where am I saying, yeah, it was me too? And do you look at this? Because I can show you the text and I can show you what it's truly saying. And I can give you applications, but I don't know your life like you, and especially God knows it. And so now that you see the text and the mirror is very clearly defined for you, and the picture of God is clearly visible to you, now you go home and through prayer and meditation you say, where am I? And where are you like this in my life, Yahweh? And help me become less of a Gideon and more of the man or woman of faith that you wanted me to be. Does that make sense? And then when we continue the story, you will see what happens to a man who refused to do that. Because if you think that this is bad, it's going to get a whole lot worse. Because Gideon failed to ask those questions. He failed to search his heart and allow God to expose his lack of faith and doubt. And he failed to see truly the image of God that was being presented before him. And because he failed to do that, and the lack of self-reflection, and the lack of seeing God truly at work, when he has a victory, it turns into cockiness and pride. And that's what happens. When you have success without self-reflection, and seeing God at work, then you become a prideful, cocky, self-reliant leader. When you never see God and you have no success, you become an incredibly depressed, self-loathing, crippled person. But when you have success and you see everything that God has done and you see where he really was him and not you, then your faith grows. And you begin to experience the power of God in your life. This is the point of the Gideon story. And so when we continue, we'll see Gideon fail to see God, but glory in the victory and what that will do to him. Does this make sense? Now Gideon has had success. He's already a little bit tainted by the fact that he said, for Yahweh and for me. There's already a little pride creeping in there. And so the question is, what is Gideon going to do with this? Is he going to see what God has done and be wowed by it and follow with it? Or is he going to respond in a different way? Verse 24, now Gideon sent messengers throughout Ephraim, the Ephraimite hill country, who announced, go down and head off the Midianites, take control of the fords of the streams all the way to Beth Baar and Jordan River. When all the Ephraimites had assembled, they took control of the fords all the way to Beth Barah 
and the Jordan River. They captured the two Midianite generals, Oreb and Zeb, and they executed Oreb on the rock of Oreb and Zeb in the winepress of Zeb. They chased the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to the Gideon, who was now on the other side of the Jordan River. So there's four major generals involved in this battle on the opposite side, the enemy, and two of them are Reb and Zeb. And Gideon now realizes that they're all fleeing across the Jordan River. So Gideon is up here in Manasseh, and they're all fleeing across the Jordan River to the eastern side of the Jordan River. And it looks like they're going to be crossing down the lower part, and Ephraim is the closest. So he blows the horn again, and seeks the help of somebody to cut them off. So the Ephraimites go to the Jordan River, and they kind of set up this like border-crossing barricade. And as they come in, the Ephraimites begin to slaughter. And they get Oreb and Zeb, and they take them. Now here's what's interesting. Not only are they going to kill them, they're going to add insult to injury. Because notice how they take them to Oreb's personal rock, which is probably an altar that he uses a sacrifice on. And, or maybe even human sacrifices, and they take Ze'eb to his own wine press. So they actually take them back to their home, so to speak, or something that they have owned, and they slaughter them there. And they cut their heads off. Now this is a very Canaanite practice. I can't remember if we talked about Not Not is the sister of Baal. Baal is the storm god and he is married to his sister who is the goddess of love and war and basically she has a text where she goes in and attacks her enemies and cuts their heads and their hands off and wears them around her neck and her waist like a belt and a necklace and it becomes her trophies and if you remember that if you were here for the hinduism thing it's pretty much kali she is portrayed in that way because i think i've said this before but you will never become greater than the gods that you worship. Whatever you bow down to, whatever you worship, you can never become greater than that. Because if you're, if you're saying that this thing is greater than me and has authority over my life and I'm going to submit to it, then you can never become more than that thing. And so if you worship money, you will be nothing more than that. If you worship work or whatever, you will be nothing more than that. And so when you worship gods that are like this Baal and Anat, you will end up becoming these things. This is one of the greatest testaments to whether you're really, truly worshiping God is when you become like him. Not because you're trying really hard to obey him, but like Abraham, when God shows him incredible generosity and gives him all these gifts, despite his lack of faithfulness in Egypt, Abraham immediately turns around and opens up his hand and pours out gifts on um, Lot, even though Lot didn't deserve it. And that's a sign that you're truly worshiping God when your character begins to reflect that. And I'm not saying like, and that doesn't mean like if you're not perfect, you're not really worshiping God. But when you see transformation happening, when you see sanctification happening, then there's true worship, there's true submission. And so when they worship these gods, they will begin to act like them. And this is what the Canaanites did. And so they cut the heads off, that kind of stuff. And remember, we talked about this at the beginning of Judges. God never wanted mutilation. But the other reason you cut the heads off is if you've ever seen movies with assassins or hitmen, and they go and they kill somebody, and they need a proof of death, so they take a picture. 
And then, of course, now in today's age, they can Photoshop it or that kind of stuff. But in the ancient world, cutting the head off was proof of death. So they could take it back to somebody, and it's a lot easier to carry a head than an entire body. And so these are the two reasons why they would do this. Practical and jacked up, but either way, not approved by God. And yet, this is what the Ephraimites are doing, which suggests that they're being influenced by their culture. They're being influenced by their culture. So they bring the heads to Gideon, when Gideon and them kind of join each other. And they say this, verse, chapter 8, verse 1, The Ephraimites said to him, Why have you done such a thing to us? You did not summon us when you went to fight the Midianites. They argued vehemently with him, and he said to them, Now what have I accomplished compared to you? Even Ephraim's leftover grapes are better quality than the Abrazer harvest. It was to you that God handed over the Midianite generals, Oreb and Zeeb, and what did I accomplish to rival that? When he said this, they calmed down. So the Ephraimites come with the heads of these two kings, and they're ticked at Gideon that they haven't been called into battle to join him. The problem is, that's not true. He blew the trumpet back when he started testing God. So the irony here is that he did blow the trumpet and they didn't show up. And on top of that, he was never supposed to blow the trumpet anyways, according to God's command. So what probably is more likely going on, and we can say this because as we keep reading other books of the Bible, Ephraim is going to gain a reputation of doing this kind of stuff, that Ephraim decided that they weren't going to show up for the battle but they were just going to show up for the aftermath cleanup program so they can get the rewards of the battle without really having to contribute large, massive amount of people to the onslaught. Because when people go into battle and they slam into each other, lots of death happens. When you're chasing an enemy that's on the run, there's a lot less death on your side. Most likely, they really just wanted the spoils of war without really the fight. But it's a lot easier to turn on Gideon and say, you didn't call us. And they're mad at him. And Gideon appeases them. Now, if it were me, I'd be like, what? (laughs) No, this is not right. But he flatters them. He knows who they are. He knows that they just, all they want is spoils and that kind of stuff. So he says, look, your grapes are way better than everybody else. And everybody knows that. What do you have to complain about? You have the grape industry. And not only that, you're the ones who cut off the heads and got the generals. Like, we just got a few soldiers, but you got the generals, and God handed them over your hand, and now you can be that. And once he flattered them and appealed to their pride and vanity, they calmed down. This is maybe not the most godly way to handle people, but at the same time, Gideon is showing some wisdom here, and he's not just going to brute force to deal with it. And this becomes very important when we get to the Jephthah story because he's going to handle this differently. So he flatters them and he deals with this. 